0: Today, I have a special tie on. This is my official Donald Trump tie. <laughs> because we're talking about apologies. And it has often been said that Donald Trump never apologizes. False. Here are some great apologies from Donald J. Trump. Sorry folks, but Donald Trump is far richer and much better looking than dopey Mark Cuban. Sorry losers and haters, but my IQ is one of the highest and you all know it. Please don't feel so stupid or insecure. It's not your fault. Classic apologies. Not all apologies are apologies how many times has someone said like I'm sorry that you feel that way (laughs) I still remember I've told this story before because it just sticks so clearly in my mind when I was in third grade sitting in my teacher's office clearing away some tears red-faced and angry and there is Greg His name hasn't been changed. If you're watching this, hi, Greg, I hope you're doing better in life. And I just got teased and bullies, but Greg is so sorry. And I have trouble regulating my emotions. And so who do you think is gonna get in trouble? Yes, it's me who's gonna get in trouble. I'll never forget as Greg has just got pat on the shoulder from the teacher. As he's walking out of the room, the teacher's looking the other way and he just like smiles at me with his little sly Greg smile. I'm like, teacher, he's not sorry. He's not sorry. (laughs) Don't worry, I've totally forgiven this. (laughs) Countless times in our marriage, Kari and I have been in arguments. It's like, Matt, you're spending all your time staring at your phone. Oh, I'm sorry, dear. But the next day. And this gets even more intense when faced with the biggest issues of life serious sins, outbursts of anger, addictions. How many times does it happen when there, I mean, it's the most thing, like the most classic of things you have an abusive husband? It's like, Like, sure, sure he hits me, but he says he's so sorry. And it's vital to understand the difference between I'm sorry and godly sorrow. Because the Bible tells us there's a difference. And this passage here is the, the classic passage for it. And and it's really key because if we're going to know when we need to enter into reconciliation with people, we need to know the difference between just this emotion of sorrow and what godly sorrow or repentance really is. This is all sorts of verses. Uh, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In this context, forgiveness means reconciliation of relationship. We need to be very clear at the difference between I'm sorry and true biblical. Repentance. We need to know the difference between the kind of worldly sorrow that is in a lot of times, just sort of like, I'm sorry I got caught for this, and a real heart change, which is biblical repentance shown in godly sorrow. This is critical in our relationships with other people, critical in understanding how to act ourselves, and critical in understanding our relationship with God. Now, first we're going to go through the text. I know I've been jumping around through the text a lot lately and like I'm just going to go through an order this time. Radical. Okay. 2 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 7 verses 2 to 3. Paul begins, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. And there is no church that caused Paul more headaches than Corinth. There's no church he wrote to more He spent tons of time here. He cared about them. He worried about them. Probably some of the the worries that he has going on has to do with the church at Corinth here. And, And you get to see it in verses like this. I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. And right here, we've had this like kind of, they call it the great digression, starting in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, going all the way to here, where Paul starts off talking about comfort and sorrow, and then he goes into all sorts of all this stuff, and now he's returning to his original theme here, about how in his affliction, he's filled with comfort. Comfort in... Their treatment of Titus, Paul's disciple. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we we're afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. And this is kind of anxieties like like there is physical danger, there is emotional trauma going on. But God, who comforts the downcast, I just love that God who comforts the downcast. And this is a theme again and again. If you want to know who God is, God is the one who is there for the humble, the weak, the weary, the sinner. God is the one who comforts the downcast. God comforted us by the coming of Titus. And so just at this point, when Paul was facing all these anxieties, he didn't know what was happening in Corinth, right at that time, God, never late, shows up with this message of comfort for him. Not only by his coming, not only the fact that he came, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Now Paul sent Titus to deal with some problems in the church in Corinth, and there were some serious problems going on. And their response, Paul didn't know what was going to happen. He was like, Maybe this is the last time I'm going I'm never going to be able to talk to these people again after I have to tell them this. But no, they responded with emotion here. Longing, mourning, zeal. And the emotion here, we're going to see like, like this emotion is present when people respond when there's problems but we're going to see what makes it truly biblical repentance as we keep going for even though i made you grieve with my letter i do not regret it though i did regret it for i see that let that that letter grieved you though only for a while now paul's conflicted about this letter this letter which I don't think is first corinthians don't think most scholars think that paul sent another letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and it's this letter. They call it the letter of tears. And Paul was kind of iffy about this letter and probably the guess is that he asked them to like just toss it eventually, which is why we don't have it. But Paul sent this letter and he kind of regret it because he was like, this is kind of a stern thing. I was kind of afraid of what would happen, yet it turned out to be good. And in here, you kind of see Paul's heart. Like some people delight in fault finding. Have you ever been on the internet? People delight in fault finding. <laughs> and, and we don't want to have that. If we ever have to say something to someone, to like, like to call them out be like, hey, you're really like... We should only do that with a bit of fear, thinking, and a little bit of not confident. Even Paul wasn't confident in his rebu- rebuke of the Corinthians. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, he took no joy in their sorrow, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. And we could see here this term godly, godly grief, or, or it's like grief In God's way, grief according to God. And and there's a massive difference between the kind of of vain, I'm sorry, and godly grief. And we're going to see it as we go through the text. And the first thing, it's very obvious that they are grieved into repenting. Grieved into repenting. For godly grief produces, it, it, it works, it creates A repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The first thing we're going to do here is we're going to look at the definition of repentance. This comes from the the Lo Nida lexicon, which I really like. Repentance, metanua, is to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To repent, to change one's way, repentance. Repentance in the Bible is never just feeling sorry about something. It's never just an emotional state because it's not just the feelings, but it's a work of God inside the person that changes their way completely it's a work of god that changes their way completely not merely a passing emotion for godly grief produces a repentance and we see this because godly grief is just the beginning it's 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 an emotion that brings repentance so that we change our ways to be right with God instead of going the other way. And this repentance leads to salvation without regret. And I think the without regret here, like Paul's like, you know, he had some regrets about this. He regretted the pain that he caused. But things that lead to salvation, like we don't regret. And that's things you know, you look back over life like, man, It's, there are a lot of hard things that kind of got me to where I am today, but I don't regret it for the sake, because Jesus Christ has got me here. Now, this is opposed to worldly grief, which has similar emotion, grief, same emotion, but it leads to, or it works, death. Separation from God. Worldly grief is the emotion of sadness about sin that turns away from God instead of turning towards him. And and this worldly grief is, is, is the thing that keeps us in a state that kind of looks like repentance but does not lead to salvation. It happens in many ways. But we are not unaware of how Satan works. Worldly grief can manifest in kinds of shame. You think of the oldest story in the Bible, Adam and Eve took ate from the wrong fruit and so sin and immediately after they ate from the fruit, what did they do? They put on some lame fig leaves and hid from the all-seeing, all-knowing God. <laughs> it's like the worst hide-and-seek job in the history of the world. But, but this is like, like our sin, our sin brings a sense of shame, things aren't right, and that sense, if it's godly, turns us back towards God. We're like, God, I need your help. But that same emotion, if we're turning away from God, causes us to go further and further and hide from him. Now, if this is you, if you're caught in the kind of shame that is leading you just to a worldly sorrow, a death, what you need to know is that God loves you and delights to save sinners no matter how far you have gone, no matter how many times that you have gone up and down, God still delights. God still delights to forgive you and bring you back into His good way. Worldly grief can catch us in unbelief. And, and this is sin clouds our reasoning to see who God really is. It, it muddles our thinking and we forget simple truths. Some people even think that they've committed the unforgivable sin. Like Satan will whisper in your ear, you've gone too far. And I just want you to debate about the meaning of the unforgivable sin. But in every sin, God, in every case, God can, God will forgive every sin that you can repent of. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a promise. If you can honestly confess your sins to God in faith, you have not gone too far. You have not stepped over a precipice. You can still be back. You can still repent. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So we're going to get to a definition. This is my definition of of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces true repentance, which turns to God in faith rather than the false, which turns away from God and empathizes with the wronged while striving to do right without excuse. Worldly sorrow moves inward in self-pity and hopelessness. Gets stuck in self-centered shame, whereas godly grief turns to God. Simply, have mercy on me, a sinner. Godly grief has faith in God, which results in repentance. A change of mind to believe God. Let's keep going. Verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves. I don't like this translation. Was I like the ESV, but I don't like the translation. These things, I think, to be separatists. What eagerness and then what clearing of ourselves. I think it, it makes more sense. It's probably not a big deal, but... What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have yourselves innocent in the matter. And one big difference between a kind of worldly sorrow and godly grief is worldly sorrow is in its essence self-pitying. It looks in- inward to protect the self while godly sorrow empathizes with those who are wrong. They didn't say, they're, they're thinking of Paul here. They're doing what's right for Paul. They're thinking of the person that they've wronged and doing everything to make it right. Both worldly and godly sorrow have deep emotion. But worldly sorrow only sees how the self has been hurt. It dwells there, it rests there, and doesn't look out towards God and doesn't look out in love towards neighbor. Here we can see the Corinthians are so eager to make things right with Paul. At every point they do the right thing. Here they are they are proved innocent in the matter, not that they didn't do wrong, because we know there's issues. There's probably a man who's like slander, who, who's slandering Paul and no one is like stopping him from speaking. That's, that's I think what's going on. But now they did everything necessary to make things right. When we do wrong, We have to understand the wrong we did against someone. Just saying, I'm sorry, without understanding the physical and emotional damage that we have done to someone is not good enough. We need to have some degree of empathy for those we hurt to feel it in a way that we understand our wrong in full. And so that we can make solid change to our actions. I'm sorry often has emotion, but without true empathy. Godly sorrow produces true repentance, which turns to God in faith, empathizes with the wrongs, with the wronged, while striving to do right without excuse. It empathizes with the wronged. I'm going to apply this later, but man, like, if you're like, in any kind of argument with someone you have any kind of conflict like you just need to like take like time out like I'm going to sit here for five minutes I'm going to try to see it from their side feel a little bit of what they're feeling I know it's hard and some of us just aren't very good at doing this I know I'm not like I'm not good at understanding especially my wife sometimes but if we're really going to be sorry we have to know what we're sorry for. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. I said, so when when sin is revealed, it often causes pain, but it's an opportunity to glorify God by doing the right thing. Godly sorrow produces obedience. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comforted comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus. Because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For, whoever, for whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. So it's like Paul, before he sent Titus, was saying, like, you know, they're going to listen. He had confidence but just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. Paul's reminding them the confidence he had for them to do the right thing. And this is a challenge to me myself. Like, I often think people are going to do the wrong thing. It's like, no, I have faith that God is going to work in people's hearts to do the right thing. <laughs> and his affection for you is even greater. As he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Now, Paul wasn't sure how this was going to go. He sends Titus there, but they receive him with fear and trembling they have the emotions but the emotions weren't all they had it resulted in them having substantial change they did the right thing and in the last like definition here godly sorrow produces true repentance which turns to god in faith empathizes with the wrong while striving to do right without excuse and and so often like if we're in the wrong like so quick to make excuses. It's like, but you were mean to me, but I was tired, but my phone is just so tempting. After all, like the smartest people in the world are trying to get me to waste time. It's a good excuse, right? It's like, no, like, oh, they We do? like, like, When we're dwelling on the excuses, again, it's like we're not empathizing. We're not thinking about the others. We're just thinking about how we protect ourselves. It's like, no, we strive to do the right thing without excuse. I'm sorry. More specifically, worldly sorrow does not turn to God. It turns inward in pain instead of turning to God in faith. It can't see God's love. turns to God in faith. Godly sorrow gives up on the self for help and turns to God. It's like the, the man who went down to the temple to pray, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not making any promises, but just asking for God's help. Wanting to do whatever it needs to, to make things right with the person it offended. Well, worldly sorrow just feels sorry for itself. It's sorry it has to face the consequences of sin. Godly sorrow truly understands the pain it caused others. It empathizes with the wronged. Godly sorrow works in love and, and, and love is really like love is caring for others Like godly sorrow it's a kind of sorrow that looks to care for others caring for the needs of others instead of just itself and man like, like you, we need like a cue for ourselves when we're in the middle of an argument, to be like, I need to empathize, empathize a little bit here. And not all of us are good at seeing other people's feelings. But, man, if we are going to be truly repentant when we have conflict with one another, we need to be able to see the hurt that we've caused. And for, and for others, like, like, if you are in a conflict with another person who is doing wrong to you like it is not it is not over the line to be like it you need to understand the wrong that you've caused me okay like I want you to be repentant here but you need to understand what you've done clearly Because only on the basis of of having this truth borne out can we have true reconciliation and growth in our relationships. Finally, godly sorrow does the right thing without excuse. Worldly sorrow might change some things, but often that change is short-lived. I'm sorry. I will never drink again. But godly sorrow, oh, what fear, what punishment, what indignation! Godly sorrow does the right thing without excuse. Now, I want to note one word here because I think it's an important word, and I put this in. I like was like striving because it's really easy when you're trying to get like a definition of this, like, like what is true repentance? Because you, know, you imagine very quickly, you get into a conflict and you'd be like, one party's like, well, you're not really truly repentant. You haven't changed everything. Well, it's like, well, no, nobody's perfect. <laughs> and, and, and so all of this has to be taken with just a giant measure of the grace of God, is that, that we need to be treating each other with the kind of grace that God treats us. And so while all this is true, like this is what we are are striving to be, to change completely so that we do the right thing. All of us are going to fall down in such ways that it is not just an intellectual exercise that Jesus told us. If your brother sins against you seven times and turns to you seven times in one day and says, I repent, you must forgive him. And so all of this stuff is going on, like constantly in relationships that we're always falling short. But we always, if we are truly being repentant, having godly sorrow, always striving to do right without excuse. Three applications from the sermon. Number one, all along we've talked about interpersonal conflict. And I think in grace, as we talked about, we can look for this kind of repentance in others before we reconcile fully with them. All of us, every day, we have to have a heart of forgiveness to everyone who wrongs us about everything, but we do not have to let abusers back into our lives if they are not turning to God, empathizing with wrong, and striving to do right without excuse secondly even more key than than expecting this of others is the golden rule to do this ourselves as we live our lives we all sin against others every day and in all of this we need to be turning to god we need to be truly have sorrow that leads to change And even more, we need to be striving to become more empathetic people, to understand the hurts that we've caused others in greater fullness. Like this could be a prayer for us. Like, Lord God, help me to understand how I have hurt others so I can live with more grace and clarity instead of carelessness and selfishness. The next time you're frustrated with someone, maybe it's right now. Who's frustrated with somebody? Don't put up your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Sit and think, how are they feeling? Put yourself in their shoes. Or at least try, pray God, like, give me insight to know their feelings about this thing. And then when you go to them, if you've done something wrong against them, don't just say, I'm sorry. He said, let's, let's use biblical language, They say, I repent. I repent because I'm turning to God in this. I'm empathizing with you. I, I, I want to know how you feel exactly and I'm going to do right without making excuses. I repent, not just I'm sorry. And in all of this, application number three is that with God we need to be repentant. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all need forgiveness in Christ. And and, and we should have the same kind of repentance with, with God, like obviously turning to God, but like seeing exactly how we have wronged God, like we want to stray, and then striving to do right without excuse. Not because we got to earn our salvation. We don't. Christ has paid it all. <laughs> you know, you know we're, it's, uh, the third verse kind of weird language in I will arise and go to Jesus. It's like uh, if we wait until we're fit, like fitness, that's talking about like if we do enough right. Like, like none of us is going to do enough right to be with God. But because Christ has saved us, the fruit of that working in our lives is true repentance which results in change, not just one day, but day after day after day, turning away from sin, resting in God's grace, and striving to do what's right without excuse. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give me godly sorrow over the sin that I've committed against others. I pray, Lord God, that you would help me to see more fully the hurt that I have caused so that I could turn from it in grace and strive to do what is right without excuse. I pray, Lord, for every other heart here that we would find and live in that kind of true repentance in all of our relationships and that we would see it in others so that we could have greater reconciliation and growth and love as a church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.